Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is The French Wars of Religion, Part 2. Thank you all again for your understanding while I was away. We should be back to our regular schedule now. And all the messages I received, all the notes, everything like that, I'm incredibly grateful for them. So thank you again for that. Let's, um, let's discuss some wars, specifically religious wars. Before I get started, I do want to give you a reminder to look at the past YouTube page. Links are in the show notes. Now, as might have been suggested in the last episode, well, prior to the reading of the 95 Theses, a lot of Europe was struggling with religion and in turn wars around the same time. The English Reformation is probably the best known in the English-speaking world due mainly to the leader of it, Henry VIII. He's, he's rather famous from what I understand. You may know a bit of what happened in the German states, which was complicated by the power of the various princes and their responses from their nominal leader, the Holy Roman Emperor, during this period that we're looking at Charles V, his brother Ferdinand I, and Ferdinand's son Maximilian, and Maximilian's son Rudolf. Despite the empire including Spain during the rule of Charles V, by the time period we're looking at, 1562 to 1598, Charles had divided this empire, giving the Holy Roman Empire to his brother, and Spain, Spanish Netherlands, and his Italian holdings to his son, Philip II. Philip II's rule in Spain will be important for our discussion today and next week, so I'm going to discuss him for a moment first. But... Just because I don't want to forget to say it, I want you all to remember that regardless of the amount of religion discussed throughout this episode and the previous ones, the wars of religion were a succession crisis as much as a religious crisis. Despite starting out his rule having lost half his European empire, Philip still held one of the largest empires of his age due to his holdings in the Americas, Africa, and Asia. He held one of the largest empires in history. He also united Spain and Portugal in 1581, and the countries would stay united until 1640. He was also a hardline Catholic. 
Through his first wife, he had one son, Carlos, who will die in 1568 and won't play a great part in this upcoming conflict. His second wife was Mary I of England, and it does appear to him that this was a political marriage, though Mary did have a false pregnancy, and it appears that to her it was a love match. His third marriage is what brings him into the French wars of religion. Well, that and the Pope. In 1559, he married Elizabeth of Valois, the eldest daughter of Henri II and Catherine de' Medici. The couple had four pregnancies, which produced two surviving daughters, Isabella Clara Eugenia and Catherine Michelia. Philip will push for his older daughter to be made Queen of France, and this is why she's going to get an episode. Once the Catholic League was formed for the second time in 1589, and we will get there, Philip was their major financier. While involving himself in French politics, he was also involved in his cousin's wars with the Ottoman Empire, his own Italian wars, and his previously mentioned work to consolidate the Iberian Peninsula. So, just a, a little about Philip and how busy he was. Now, on to the actual start of the French wars of religion. One thing you need to know are numbers. The population of France around this time was 20 million. By the midpoint of these wars, the Huguenot population was 2 million, and Paris had a population of between 210 and 280,000. As you'll remember from Antoine's episode, the starting point of the wars was the massacre at Vassy. Of course, at the time, no one knew this would lead to more than 35 years of on and off fighting in France. And this is where I'm going to start. Antoine's episode really does include a good primer of the religious and political issues that were going on immediately prior to the start of these wars. Remember though, France immediately prior to this period was ruled by a weak boy king, Francis II. And who knows if he had grown up, he could have become a strong king, but he was a boy and we will never know. After his death in 1560, his much younger brother, Charles IX, who was only 10 upon his accession and 11 when Vassy occurred, became king. Young Charles obviously had a regent, his mother, Catherine de' Medici. And Catherine had struggled with the uncles-in-law of Francis II, the Guise brothers, Francis, Duke de Guise, and Charles, Cardinal de Lorraine. I want to defend Catherine for a moment, and patrons will eventually hear me defend Catherine in a special episode. Her young sons had both inherited broke countries, financially broke. So much had been spent on wars in Italy and within the empire, it wasn't an easy set of circumstances. Catherine had been in favor of reforming the church. But like other Catholic reformers, she didn't want to overthrow the Catholic Church. She was still Catholic. She tried to find a third way between continuing her husband's attempts to eradicate the new religion or allowing it to overthrow Catholicism and institute a Calvinist monarchy. Instead, she chose to end persecutions but not allow open practicing by Calvinists. The Guise did agree with this for the moment, but it doesn't mean they were happy about it. 
The Guise brothers were hardline Catholics, and while they were out of direct power in the palace with the reign of young Charles, they were still powerful. The Duc de Guise held a great deal of land and had a great deal of military power. His brother was the Archbishop of Reims, which was the primate of the French church. Primate is not the class that humans and apes and monkeys belong to. It means the highest ranked leader of the Catholic Church in France. I did have that explained to me in high school, so I don't think anyone's silly if they don't know what it means. You'll remember from Antoine's episode that the Duc de Guise is at least partially at fault for the massacre of Vassy. A quick review of that, the Duc de Guise was traveling to Paris through his holdings at the village of Vassy on the 1st of March, 1562. He witnessed a Calvinist religious service occurring and either ordered or allowed his men to kill at least 50 parishioners. Now, to be fair to Guise, he may have been unable to stop his men. But he also could have been unwilling to stop them. Hardline Catholic and enraged by seeing a public practice of an opposing religion, remember. This massacre was basically a call to action for Huguenots. Antoine's brother, Condé, led this charge. Their plan was to liberate the king from the Catholic hardliners, also known as his evil counselors. Yes, I love that, Jim. And this is the start of the first of eight or nine wars. Now, this is also where I should discuss the three groups. Yes, three groups that make up this conflict. First, the Huguenot, the French Protestants who are also known as Calvinist. The second, the hardline Catholics who are referred to as the Catholic League or Leaguers. And finally, the politiques who are the royalists. And yes, this will be a confusing set of conflicts. Each party had uh, foreign supporters as well. The Huguenots received support from England, Scotland, the Protestant provinces of the Netherlands, known as the United Provinces. The League received support from Spain, Portugal, and the Pope. And the Politiques received support from the Papal States and Spain, until 1588. And yes, there's a big change then and a good reason for this. And I should note that the Catholic League didn't actually come into play until 1576. So they're not involved in the first five wars and I will give you a heads up when they do come in properly. The first war was fought from 1562 to 63. And this is the portion that um, Antoine died in. But there was another important death during the first period of the wars, the Duc de Guise. He was assassinated during the Siege of Orléans. And yes, he was assassinated during a siege. Apparently, the Duke was close to winning the siege, and a Frenchman, Jean de Poltreau, had become aware that the Duke was near unguarded in the evenings while returning to his home after battle. Paltrow was able to hide along this route and shot de Guise on the 18th of February. So while the act occurred during the period of the siege, it was outside of the actual battle and hence an assassination. De Guise didn't die right away. It actually looked like he might live and had penicillin been an option, he likely would have. His doctors, realizing that an infection was setting in, attempted to remove the projectile that had hit him, 
which ended up worsening his condition. And he died on the 24th of February, 1563. Before he died, he wanted to apologize for Vasi and express that he was in favor of reform within the Catholic Church. But his family made sure his confession was taken by a hardline confessor, as in the priest that attended him was a hardliner and unlikely to let this out in any way, shape, or form. And also, by reform, he doesn't mean Protestantism. He means fix the church. Paltrow was apprehended, tortured, and executed on the 18th of March, and he named Gaspard II de Colony, the Admiral of France, as his co-conspirator. Colony was not prosecuted, but he and Guise's son would have a bit of an ongoing feud. Guise's son, Henri, would succeed to the Guise dukedom. He was only 12 at the time of his father's death, and I feel that Colony probably needs a much longer introduction, but I'm not ready to give it here. I, I will get to it. Through the tangled web that is DNA, he is the great-great-grandfather of William III of England, as in William and Mary, and also the ancestor to all kings of Prussia. Yeah, his daughter married very well, which is surprising when we get to the end of his story, which I promise we will. Guise's death and the fact that Orléans didn't fall to the Catholics led to the first truce, the Edict of Amboise issued by Catherine de' Medici on the 19th of March, 1563, which happened to be the same day as Guise's funeral. This edict granted Huguenots the right to worship openly in specific suburbs in each town. Remember, prior to this, Huguenots hadn't officially been allowed to worship publicly at all. Protestant worship was not allowed in Paris. Property seized by Huguenots from the Catholic Church was to be returned and offices and property expropriated due to the officeholder being a Protestant by either the state or various municipalities was also to be returned. Armed religious assemblies for either group, Catholic or Protestant, were banned. And registering this edict with the various parlements was a struggle to say the least. But Charles IX declared his majority in August 1563, which actually helped. And by the way, Charles was 13 at the time. So while he was an adult, he did allow his mother to continue to assist him. Despite the no more arms rule, everyone kept arms. Huguenots felt threatened because they literally were, and Catholics couldn't let their enemies have more arms than they had. Charles IX went on a grand tour of his kingdom, like a royal progress. He did bring his mom because he was 14 at this point. This was meant to show him as a strong king. The peace lasted until 1567, when Charles was given a bit of a surprise, and sadly, it wasn't the one he wanted. The surprise of Mo was a coup attempt that involved, wait for it, trying to kidnap the king. Yeah, it does appear that this is the go-to plan for this period. And this one did make it further into the planning stages than the attempt to kidnap Francis II at Amboise. But like that one, it was discovered. 
Charles and his court fled Mo at 3 a.m. on the morning of the 26th of September, 1567. The court reached Paris, and in case you're wondering, the Huguenot leader of this plot was Prince Condé, the figurehead of the last attempt to kidnap a French king. And this coup, in addition to failing, led to negative feelings towards Huguenots. In I, I know, it's, it's surprising. I feel that maybe, just maybe, had the Huguenots picked a different strategy, things might have gone better for them in the long run. And now we're back at war. This will happen more than a few more times. The first battle of this war was the Battle of Saint-Denis. And another long time mention in this series, Anne Montmorency dies at this battle. Now, dying in battle is horrible, I'm sure. But he was 74 years old at this point. I'm impressed he even, like, hung out in a tent, let alone leading troops. He was shot when he refused to surrender after he was surrounded following a charge. And he had been taken prisoner a few times prior to this, as some of you might know, and he really wasn't keen on being prisoner again. His sons he had a lot of them, were able to reach him and get him to safety, but he died two days later on the 12th of November, 1567. Royal forces actually won this battle prior to his death, but the Protestant forces were able to make an orderly retreat. Orderly retreats are a big deal. Montmorency will be the last constable of France until 1593 when his second but oldest surviving son, Henri, was appointed to this role by, spoilers, Henri IV of France, who is also Henri III of Navarre. I do feel a bit like this episode is becoming a bit of killing off various people I've introduced over the past few episodes, and I hope it doesn't get too depressing. It did happen a very long time ago. Okay, that might have been slightly disingenuous because we're only to the second war and there are a lot of deaths. At this point, Charles IX is almost 17 and he was taking more control of his kingdom. He sent a letter to Prince Condé and the other Huguenot leaders. The king offered the rebels amnesty if they would lay down their arms. Condé and the other leaders said they would agree as long as they were given freedom of worship. The king acting like a petulant child, was angered by this and said he wouldn't negotiate with his subjects. He told the rebels they had three days to agree to his request and that they could worship in their own homes. Oh, and the royalists would remain armed. Fighting continued sporadically, and the Protestant forces were able to leave France and meet up with German mercenaries, and by the Protestant forces, I mean the leaders. Condé's biggest problem was he didn't have any money to pay his mercenaries. Condé began returning to France in early 1568, began besieging the royal forces at Chartres in late February, with the goal of sacking the city to pay his mercenaries. Colony, probably the second most important Huguenot leader in France, had taken a portion of these mercenary forces to relieve Orléans, and was successful in that while also taking further cities. Condé's siege of Chartres was successful at a few points, but in the end, he could not maintain any advantage he won. By the 13th of March, a truce was declared. Weeks later, the Peace of Longjumier 
sometimes known as the Edict of Longjumier, was signed in March. This edict provided, well, almost nothing more than the previous edict. The crown did help Condé pay for his mercenaries, probably because unpaid mercenaries are just bad for any country, and France had way too much experience with that. Please see the entire Hundred Years' War. Unlike the previous edict, this one was registered with the various parlements rather quickly. The peace lasted for an even shorter time than the last one. In fact, a group of Catholics continued to besiege a Protestant town for a week after this was registered. Now, I just want to remind you that Prince Condé is actually a Ponce du Song, and he was a member of court. And Colony was the Admiral of France and had been since 1552 and was also a member of court. And they had been leading forces against the royal forces. So after the peace was finally in place, legally, Catholics started banning together against the peace. Condé and Colony actually fled court and Huguenots were murdered throughout the country. Charles IX decided to throw some fuel on the fire and issued the Edict of Saint-Maur. This edict, well, it let Huguenots do nothing, as in it revoked all their earlier religious freedoms and gave them two weeks to leave France. The Huguenots who weren't running for their lives began to organize with Dutch Protestants, and this would lead to the Third War. Yes, there really is not a gap between the Second and Third Wars. Now, here we enter someone you should all remember. Jean Delbray, Queen of Navarre, last seen making a mad rush for the Navarrese border to avoid being placed in a convent by her rather upset husband. And remember, she didn't make it to her husband's deathbed. Just to remind you all, Jean was the only surviving child of Henri of Navarre and Marguerite of Angoulême. This means she was the only niece of Francis I. Henri II's only paternal cousin and a cousin of both Francis II and now Charles IX. Jean was also the widow of Antoine de Bourbon, our last subject, and the mother of Henri, who will become the King of Navarre upon her death as Henri III. And yet again, spoilers, the King of France as Henri IV. Jean had remained neutral throughout the first two wars, but had likely been moved to support the Huguenots in France when the Pope, Pius IV at this time, threw together a plot to have her kidnapped and turned over to the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. This plot didn't just upset Jean, it actually scared Philip of Spain and Catherine de Medici, who were both alarmed and offended by the Pope attempting to take direct control of religious issues near their countries. The idea of kidnapping an anointed head of state is its a pretty big deal. Also, France and Spain would have received a divided Navarre, which at this point was a Protestant kingdom. Jean actually met with Catherine de' Medici in 1565 to discuss the situation, obviously prior to the outbreak of the Second War. And Jean hoped for the establishment of Guyenne, combined with Navarre as basically a Protestant state. 
This didn't happen, of course, but throughout 1568, 69, and 70, she did what she could to make this happen. And after this message, you'll hear more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. November of 1568 saw the Dutch, led by William of Orange, invade France to support the Huguenots. This invasion quickly fizzled when Charles IX offered William a bunch of money. The broke William said, thank you, I'll see myself out. Condé led most of the resistance from the south of the country. German Protestant militias supported Condé, and they were paid via a loan from England that Jean guaranteed with her crown jewels. Charles IX's brother, Henri, the future Henri III, led the royalist forces. In March 1569, Huguenot and royalist forces met at the Battle of Yarnac. This fight didn't go well for the Huguenot, and it went especially poorly for Condé. He was unhorsed and actually surrendered, and then he was executed. With Condé's death, de Conley became the nominal leader of the Huguenot forces. Condé's son, Henri, and Jean's son, Henri, were 16 and 15, respectively, at this time, and a bit too young to be leading things. So Colony was leading on their behalf. With Colony leading, Huguenots did better, and I'm not blaming Condé. It's just, Colony seemed to have been really good at strategy. His forces were able to pillage Toulouse and were threatening the rest of France. The royal coffers were empty, and Charles IX asked for peace. The Peace of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, 
was signed on the 8th of August, 1570, after a long negotiation and followed almost two years of various members of the nobility telling the king that maybe he should go back to the earlier peace. Please, please note that there is a second treaty of the same name signed in 1919, and these are very different treaties, as you can guess. Charles IX, Colony and Jean of Navarre were the primary negotiators. There are 38 articles within this treaty, and each one seemed to make one side or the other unhappy. This piece ordered that earlier issues brought up in the three previous wars be forgotten, and importantly, it banned the investigation into the faith of others. The king asked that his citizens live peacefully. Calvinism was allowed to be practiced on private estates and within noble holdings, and suburbs were to be selected for free Calvinist worship within towns. But worship could not happen within two leagues of court. A league is 4.38 kilometers or three miles for my American listeners. Huguenots were allowed to keep their arms within the Calvinist cities of southern France, but Catholic worship had to be returned to those cities. Article 32 was pretty contentious in Paris. This article voided all sentences that were brought about due to the war on the basis of religious matter, meaning Colony was no longer under a 50,000 ecu bounty, which is a win for him. We'll see how that goes in the long run. But it also required the destruction of all monuments built in commemoration of those who had been executed throughout the earlier wars. Charles IX didn't mess around this time. He ordered the Parlement to register this immediately and ordered that all officers of his court swear to it. Now, even with this piece, there was some drama. I know, surprising. Henri de Guise, the young Duke de Guise, had begun an affair with Marguerite, Charles IX's youngest sister. Having an affair with the king's sister was a scandal on its own. And it's an even bigger scandal when the king planned to marry the sister to another king. Yes, Charles IX and his mother, Catherine, were planning on marrying Marguerite to Henri of Navarre. Henri de Guise was exiled from court and Marguerite was told off. The Duc de Guise's uncle, the Cardinal de Lorraine, also left court around the same time, being discharged for telling the Duc de Guise to make a move on Marguerite. Yeah, the whole de Guise family really wasn't looking good at this moment. After the peace was registered and things went well for over a year and a half, Catherine de Medici and Jean of Navarre, with some minor input from Charles IX and Henri of Navarre, began negotiating for the marriage between Henri and Marguerite. Jean was not as keen on this marriage as the French court was. She was worried her son would be forced to reject his Calvinist faith, foreshadowing, but felt it might bring long-term peace. Jean was unimpressed with the lack of morality in the French court and warned her son of such. These negotiations started in earnest in February 1572. The marriage contract was signed on the 11th of April 1572 and Jean remained in Paris after the negotiations were complete, preparing for the wedding. 
She took ill on the 4th of June, 1572. Over the next five days, she became sicker, having a fever and complaining of pain. She died of natural causes on the 9th of June, 1572, at only 43. Her son, Henri, was now Henri III of Navarre. She had a daughter, Catherine, who probably gets less attention from history than she deserves. This Catherine will act as regent in Navarre for the next two decades due to, well, the things that are about to happen. Ready? Before I get to where things go really wrong, I want to note that the reason I don't suggest Jean was poisoned is because an autopsy performed at the time found no indication of poison. And you'll have to visit Patreon and listen to Catherine de' Medici's special episode for a discussion on poison. But now let's have a wedding. That'll be fun, right? On the 18th of August, 1572, Henri III of Navarre married Marguerite of Valois, as that whole marriage contract said they'd do. Yay, congratulations, kids! There was one major problem with this marriage from a legal point of view. Papal dispensation was not received. And yes, like everyone, they were related. They shared great-great-grandparents, which is only three degrees of consanguinity. Cardinal de Bourbon, the next subject in this mini-series, agreed to perform the wedding. He was the groom's uncle, after all, and his godfather. Very related. Many of the kingdom's Calvinists came to Paris for the wedding, as expected. Henri's court was Calvinist, and Coligny was the leading general of his forces, plus a member of the French court. Henri was 18, Marguerite was 19, and Marguerite was now Queen of Navarre. Congratulations. And the wedding brought peace between France and Navarre, right? Now, not even a little. You'll remember from my earlier episodes that Paris was Catholic, extremely Catholic. The University of Paris was a huge reason for this, as was the Paris Parlement, as you can probably tell from earlier episodes. During the reign of Francis I, Charles IX's grandfather and Henri III's great uncle, Francis's sister, Marguerite, who was Henri III's grandmother, was accused of being a Protestant by the university. Patrons will remember this. Throughout the reigns of Francis I, Henri II, and now Francis II and Charles IX, Parlement had shown itself to be aligned with Catholic interests. These two institutions and the presence of court in Paris were all parts of the explanation as to why Paris remained Catholic with a minimal Calvinist presence. But let's not get overfixated on the less than fun parts of it. There's just been a wedding. We need a wedding party. On the 20th of August, two days after the wedding, Catherine de' Medici, the only surviving parent of either the bride or the groom, through a grand performance. It was possibly one of the first ballet de corps, or court ballet, and it was held at the Petit Bourbon. This was a city palace that had once belonged to the Bourbon family until that traitorous Charles de Bourbon, remember Anne of France's son-in-law, committed treason during the reign of Francis I. A court ballet is best described as a performance during a masquerade ball where once the performance was complete, the guests were asked to join in with the performers, who themselves were often guests of the ball. 
At the ball held to celebrate this royal wedding, Catherine had her sons, Charles IX, Henri, and Hercule Francis, pantomime a tournament where they protected angelic nymphs from the evil Huguenots, who included Henri III of Navarre and Prince Condé, the 19-year-old son of the previous Prince Condé. The Huguenots were unsurprisingly sent to hell in the performance. I know, it was not subtle at all. The play ended with the French king and the princes rescuing the Huguenots from hell. Now, nothing overly exciting happened yet. Colony was at the various wedding events and seemed sad. He had been hoping to discuss things with the king, but Charles IX had been ignoring his requests. On the 21st, a second pantomime was performed. Like the first, it was well received, and this was the end of the public festivities. Not long after the second day of festivities, the new Duke of Montmorency, the late Anne's oldest son, Francis, left court, claiming he felt unwell. I will note that he was the governor of Paris, oh, and also the brother-in-law of the French king via Henri II's illegitimate daughter, Diane de France. Did I mention that everyone is related? Colony still hadn't been able to see the king and was waiting to return to his pregnant young wife until he could meet with Charles IX. He had left her and his three children from his first marriage at Châtillon Colony, a town about 150 kilometers south of Paris. Colony attended council, led by Henri, the Duke of Anjou, Charles IX's younger brother, followed by a tennis match with Charles IX on the 22nd of August. And just for the record, I will call Henri Duke of Anjou. Anjou for now. He gets a few fancy new titles in the next few years. As Colony was returning to his house in the city, he was shot. The ball, I don't think there were proper bullets in this day, injured his right finger and left arm, and he apparently hardly reacted and was able to point out the direction of the shot. And while his assailant escaped, his companions did find the musket. So, yay, an assassination attempt thwarted by luck with only minor injuries. This keeps getting better. The king was enraged when he was informed. While Charles had been ready to ban Huguenots from practicing, he wasn't about to put up with someone trying to kill one of his leading men. Plus, they had peace now. This is like someone trying to assassinate Lisa M. Franchetti. For my American listeners, for my non-American listeners, that is the highest-ranked naval officer in the U.S., at least at the time of writing. The king promised that those responsible would pay. The rest of the royal family was in shock. Unsurprisingly, the Huguenot leadership blamed the Guise faction for this assassination attempt. Colony asked the king to visit him because he was wounded and couldn't attend to the king. When the king arrived, they discussed matters. Apparently, you just need to get shot to get the king's attention. Colony was supportive of Charles, but warned him that some of his advisors might not be serving him well. The king promised justice. Colony remained at his residence despite the king's request that he move to the royal palace. Even after the royal visit, the Huguenot faction was upset, understandably. They made threatening remarks and even protests near the properties of the powerful, including the Dowager Queen Catherine, and someone met with her in the royal gardens. 
The Huguenots were implying that they didn't trust the king's justice. Despite all this, by the evening of the attempted assassination, everything seemed calm. It appears that all sides had decided to let the king handle justice. That is his job, after all. You're probably all wondering who tried to kill Colony, because that's interesting. Well, the person who likely pulled the trigger was Charles de Louvier. He was a minor nobleman who had been a Guise retainer early in his career, but had then converted to Protestantism. At some point in his life, he murdered his own tutor and later killed his commanding officer, right before redefecting to the royalist side of the ongoing conflict. At this point, he had joined Anjou's retinue. Shockingly, or not so, he was not popular with the royal army. Probably killing your commanding officer had something to do with that. Overall, he sounds like a really horrible guy who happened to be lucky enough to come from a family with just enough noble power to make him matter enough that no one killed him. So, I've named two leading men that could have encouraged Louvier to attempt to kill Colony, the Duc de Guise and Anjou. But could he have acted alone? Well, maybe. Here's the thing. We don't know who called the shot, so to speak. Yeah. One of history's enduring mysteries is who actually ordered this assassination. I will, in fairness, tell you that the house the shot was made from belongs to the Duc de Guise, and his senior servant had been seen coming and going around the time of the assassination. Just saying. So, there is an investigation going on. The Protestants had calmed down overnight on the 22nd, and by the 23rd, they were helping with the investigation. The king had promised them safety, and so the majority remained in Paris. The Duc de Guise's senior servant had been ordered arrested, but had somehow managed to leave the city. The Duc de Guise himself stated that he would be leaving the city, but instead stayed covertly. Anjou's men were now guarding Colony. His fellow Protestants also planned to confront the Duc de Guise on the 24th, because they knew he was still in town. As you can imagine, rumors were flying throughout the city. One leading man had been shot. It had been implied that another had planned it. And the king's justice had been questioned. Both Catholics and Protestants felt unsafe. A small council made of Catherine, Charles, and a few of their Catholic advisors met on the 23rd and decided that the leading Protestants needed to be, well, removed. To calm things. Later that day, the same council met to discuss exactly what would happen. There were arguments that Henri of Navarre and Prince Condé be spared because they were royal, and hopefully because one of them was family. Oh, and they were also right at hand. Uh, apparently, it was also discussed that trying to arrest the Huguenot leadership would be too dangerous. Better to kill them. They did finally agree not to kill Henri of Navarre. This group then invited the Duc de Guise to join them. Once he was there, along with his uncle, he was told he would be killing Colony and the Huguenots around him. The plan had been set to assassinate all high-ranking Huguenots. Remember how the king had promised them they'd be safe? Well, they weren't. And the king was in on the plan. 
Whether he led the plan or just went along with the others, it doesn't matter. He was the king and he let this happen. Different primary sources blame different members of the royal family and nobility. But at the end of the day, the king is where it stops. Sorry, Charles IX doesn't get away with anything in my book. After the final decisions were made, the gates of the city were ordered closed. On the morning of the 24th of August, St. Bartholomew's Day, Guise and his cohort broke into Coligny's residence. He ordered his followers to flee to the rooftop. Coligny was killed by one of the Guise's followers, and his body was left in the street to be mutilated by local Catholics. Despite what I imagine was a fearful situation, Coligny had remained stoic in his last moments. Henri of Navarre and Prince Condé promised to convert to Catholicism to survive what came next. The Swiss mercenaries of the King's Guard were tasked with killing the other Huguenots in the palace. Outside of Paris, massacres occurred as well. Twelve cities that had large Huguenot minorities suffered from this. There was one major town, Nantes, that a massacre would be expected. But the city's mayor decided not to follow through on a letter he received from Anjou right away. And luckily for the Huguenots in that city, he waited until he received counter orders from the king. Do we know how many people died in total in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, as we call it now? No. Honestly, the numbers range from 5,000 to 30,000. And as you can imagine, the wars were back on. This is also the moment where the politiques, the royalist party of the French Wars of Religion, are starting to be seen as a separate group from the Catholic Party, which will eventually form the Catholic League. Because I was curious, it has a lot to do with my job, I looked up a bit about St. Bartholomew. He was one of Jesus's apostles, those that were taught directly by Jesus and sent to spread his word after Jesus's crucifixion. Bartholomew, by tradition, traveled to India to preach the gospel, and he was eventually martyred horrifically, depending on the account, either by crucifixion, drowning, or being flayed alive. It's a reminder that humanity is far too cruel to each other far too often. In case you are curious, because I mentioned it a bit, Colony's wife and children survived the massacre. His wife gave birth to their only child five months after his death. The little girl grew up, survived into adulthood, and was married well, but I can't find much other information about her. His older daughter, Louise, though, lived a life that was recorded in a bit more detail. Her first husband was a Huguenot who was killed during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, in the palace of all places. Louise was sent to Switzerland by her stepmother for her safety. In April 1583, Louise married William the Silent the founder of the House of Orange and the first Prince of Orange. Through him, she was the mother of Frederick Henry, who was the grandfather of William III of England, as in William and Mary. Further, Frederick Henry's daughter, Louise Henriette, was the mother of Frederick I of Prussia, which means that colony, the Admiral of France, whose attempted assassination basically led to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, is the ancestor of the dissolved Kingdom of Germany, the current King of the Netherlands, and possibly a few other royal families of Europe, because don't forget everyone is related. I don't think anything special comes through DNA other than survival, but I just found this little historic note interesting. 
With that, I'll be back next week. There will be a lot more war. And as you can guess by counting, <laughs> there are a few more to get through. The next bit really shows us the family dispute that is quickly becoming what's going on alongside this religious conflict. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a few minutes and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. It really helps the show grow and helps people become aware of us. And thank you, as always. Do remember that I've started a YouTube page, so have a look when you can, and I will see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at passpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash passpod. <laughs>